Hey guys, what's up? Uh, welcome to another edition of the podcast. And uh, man, uh, this week, today, uh, I'm recording this uh, on Wednesday night. It's just been such a crazy week. Um, such a crazy day in the news, just one thing after another. Um, so I'm going to try and compartmentalize a little bit and really just focus on the week in uh, pop culture. And uh, there's definitely a lot to talk about there. So um, I'll do that. I will say one quick thing, which is sort of related to current events. And that is, you know, obviously it was, was really sad um, this past Friday to hear about the, the passing of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And, um, you know, I think she was a hero to a lot of people. Um, she was someone who I certainly looked up to. I think, um, you know, so many people, she was sort of just a living legend, uh, a real life superhero. And certainly in the last couple of years, I feel like there's just been this iconic status attained by her. Um, you know, I think more and more we've grown to appreciate that she was still around, that she was still fighting the good fight, that she was a voice of dissent, you know, even even as she sort of became a, a minority within the Supreme Court um, on the more progressive side of things. Um, and, you know, we, we, you know, one way to just tie it back into sort of this podcast is that there were in recent years some really good movies about her life. And I do think, you know, for anyone who wants to just better understand uh, kind of what she stood for and what some of the history was of, of what made her so great and iconic, um, certainly I would recommend the movie RBG, the documentary um, that came out a few years ago. Um, it's a really great documentary. It, I, I think at one point it aired on CNN and it's through CNN films. Um, and I think they've been airing it, um, a few times recently as well, um, following the passing of, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but it's a really great documentary. It really goes over, um, in a way that, that makes it really easy to understand and compelling, you know, what some of her main sort of landmark cases were over the years. Um, both as an attorney and then as a judge and then as a Supreme Court justice. Um, and it also just gives a really nice look into her personal life and notably her relationship with her husband, Marty, that was just such an amazing relationship. And, um, you know, you watch it and you just can't help but get kind of teary-eyed seeing how the two of them complemented each other so well. Um and so that's a really great movie. And I would also recommend the movie on the basis of sex that came out a few years ago um, with Felicity Jones playing Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, Army Hammer playing uh, Marty. Um, you know, it's a, it's a good movie. It um, covers a lot of the same ground as the documentary, but kind of focuses, I guess, specifically on kind of one of the landmark cases that sort of helped uh, bring equal protection under the law for men and women. And um, it's definitely a good movie, um, you know, well worth a watch. Again, if you want to sort of learn more about the life of, of RBG. And uh, yeah, it was just very sad on Friday. I think it was already kind of a long week leading up to Friday. And then, you know, I think 
for me, I was sort of finishing up the week. I was ready to relax. And then, uh, and it was, you know, it's a Jewish holiday. Um, so I was kind of getting ready for that. Um, and then that news came in and it was just such a gut punch. Um, and I think a lot of us are still sort of processing both, you know, the, the passing of such an iconic uh, figure in our, in our recent history. And also, of course, all the, you know, political ramifications that come from that. Um, so it's a lot to process. It's still sort of an ongoing story, but I did want to mention that at the top of the podcast. Um, so uh, no easy way to transition from that, but, you know, I did also want to talk about uh, in lighter news, uh, the Emmys that happened on Sunday. Um, and so, you know, the Emmys, uh, I sort of had done a preview of the Emmys several weeks back when the nominations were announced, but, um, you know, as for the show itself, I, uh, I thought it was okay. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it was like, it definitely lacks something of having the live presentation. And, you know, I think different award shows have done varying degrees of good jobs in terms of doing sort of a virtual show. Um, I actually thought, believe it or not, the MTV VMAs sort of maybe set the gold standard uh, a few weeks ago with how they did their, their presentation without a full audience. Um, and the Emmys, you know, they had a few good moments, a few good, like, little cameo moments. Um, but in terms of the awards, you know, I think probably the biggest story was that Shit's Creek just absolutely kind of cleaned up um, on the comedy side. And, you know, well-deserved. I talked about this before, but I've been kind of uh, slowly but surely binge-watching Shit's Creek um, kind of since the beginning of the year, even from before quarantine started. And, you know, I watch like one or two episodes a week, just kind of taking my time um, and, you know, enjoying the show at, at my own pace. But I really like it. It definitely gets a lot better as it gets sort of midway through season one and into season two. And, you know, it's just filled with such great comedic actors, you know, from the main characters to the supporting players. Um, and so absolutely well-deserved to see you know, all four of those main actors, uh, Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, uh, Daniel Levy, and Annie Murphy all win uh, awards. You know, they're all just fantastic on the show. And you have sort of like two living legends in Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. And then you have two, uh, you know, sort of newer faces in Daniel Levy and Annie Murphy who are just so good uh, and just very quickly created very iconic comedic characters. Um, so well-deserved. I think it is kind of very of the moment that that show got so many uh, awards. You know, certainly a lot of it was that it was the final season that, that aired most recently. And um, it was sort of honoring the show uh, for, for that. But also I do think people have been binge watching it throughout quarantine. It's just kind of the ultimate like comfort food comedy. And I think a lot of people have been discovering it, probably including Emmy voters over the last several months. So, you know, not a huge shocker that it, that it did so well. Um, the only thing I will say is, you know, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I'm such a huge fan of that show. To me, it's been the probably the best comedy of the last, you know, five years. And Andre Brower on that show is so 
incredibly good and so laugh out loud funny he really should have won an emmy by now um and he was nominated this year for best supporting actor in a comedy you know it was sort of the year of Shit's creek which i do totally understand um but i couldn't help be a little disappointed that andre brower didn't didn't win and i hope he gets nominated again and does win because just one of the greatest comedic characters ever on a sitcom in my opinion um is his portrayal of captain holt on uh, brooklyn 99 and then uh you know the good place is the other one that it just is kind of sad that the show has gone its whole run without kind of winning best comedy um that show is just so uh consistently funny and smart and interesting um, I feel like it was very, uh, you know, lacking in Emmy love over the years. And that is a little baffling to me. Um, but, you know, it was a, a really good final episode. And it'll certainly go down as, again, one of the best comedies of the last several years. So, you know, I hope, uh, I don't think The Good Place is in any danger of sort of fading away from memory. I think it will live on as a as a cult classic for years and years to come. Um, but would have been nice if it got some Emmy love. And I, you know, I'll, I'll give one other comedy shout out. It was a pretty stacked category this year. Um, you know, again, what we do in the shadows to me, that's been the absolute just funniest show of the last year. Um, season two of the show is just an absolute classic season of comedy. And so, you know, again, I was really rooting for that one. It was almost surprising that it got nominated since it is, you know, kind of a, uh, a unique show. I mean, a show about vampires, not exactly like Emmy material, despite being incredible and hilarious. But, you know, couldn't help but root for that one a little bit, too. Um, on the, the mini series or limited series side, you know, again, very well deserved for Watchmen no surprise whatsoever that it won a lot of awards there including you know Regina king winning for best uh, actress and you know i've said a lot about Watchmen on the podcast absolutely loved it like a lot of people i was skeptical going in just given that the the comic book by alan moore and dave gibbons is such a you know uh kind of untouchable classic and it's sort of so uniquely designed for the comic book medium that I think it's a very tough thing to adapt or to bring into the world of, of TV or film. But, you know, Damon Lindelof and all the rest, uh, they pulled it off and they did a sequel that was both a really interesting sequel to Watchmen or sort of pseudo sequel. And then also just in its own right as a standalone thing, even if you didn't know the Watchmen comic, I think it was just an incredibly powerful, um, just very compelling, super well-written, uh, well-acted, well-shot uh, miniseries, and you know certainly deserving of all the awards there. Um, and man, I mean, how crazy is it that that show essentially like taught a lot of us about the the real-life Tulsa massacre? you know, right as we were about to enter this moment of Black Lives Matter and, and social justice awareness. And it's just a quintessential example of something that should be taught in school, should be something that everyone knew about. 
And it was just this moment in history that was kind of downplayed for whatever reason. Um, and, and Watchmen really brought it into the spotlight in literally the opening minutes of its pilot episode. So, you know, if nothing else, Watchmen was sort of a real cultural, um, you know, uh, moment, I feel like this year. So, uh, great job Watchmen on the Emmy wins. Well-deserved. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is on the drama side, um, you know, I just, I certainly was rooting for Better Call Saul. I think no, no way around that. Um, I, I, I do need to catch up on Succession. I've seen a couple episodes and it's sort of on my list to go back and, and finish up. But uh, man, Better Call Saul had just one of the all time great TV seasons this year. Um, I think it was really uh, up there with Breaking Bad, which I don't say lightly since Breaking Bad is, you know, maybe the best TV drama ever made. Um, but Better Call Saul just, I think, had its best overall season this year. Just knocked it out of the park. And uh, the fact that Rhea Seahorn was not nominated for Best Actress in a Drama, just crazy to me. So, um, you know... I would have loved to see that get some wins, get some more nominations, but uh, that's not how it turned out. So, you know, it's the Emmys. Uh, historically, a lot of great shows, you know, having won, haven't even been nominated. Um, you know, a lot of my all time favorite shows like Fringe, uh, like so many others I could name, um, you know, on the comedy side too, um, were never really. Uh, nominated at all so um you know you can only put so much importance on the emmys um but uh it's always interesting to see what wins what gets nominated and it's fun to sort of talk about so that's all i've got to say about the emmys um what else i was gonna just mention uh, i won't do a whole item on this but uh, I was going to mention on the video game side, I did get my copy of uh, Super Mario 3D All-Stars for Switch. Um, you know, I'm still just sort of diving into it, and I never had any of these games originally. Uh, I never owned any Nintendo system um, since really the Super NES when I was a kid. Um, I sort of became a PlayStation guy um, when the PS1 came out, so I never had... Uh, an N64, I never had a, a Wii, a GameCube. And so I'm playing some of these games for the first time. Um, the older games like Mario 64, it is kind of hard to go back to. And I think that's true for a lot of the early 3D games from that era. You know, they just had very uh, primitive graphics. You know, even I think at the time, you sort of knew that this was like the early stages of 3D and that it was sort of like a work in progress. So going back to some of those games now is tough. Um, and then, you know, the one thing that is also a little frustrating is uh, with Mario Galaxy, they haven't fully updated it for Switch in that they still have a lot of these motion controls left over from Wii, which is kind of annoying, I have to say. So, um, you know, I can already tell just playing it that it's a kind of incredible game and has that trademark Mario magic to it, but just getting through the menus is kind of annoying because you've got to do like this weird motion control thing. And if you're playing with a, you know, a pro controller on the Switch, which, you know, I that's what I'm doing, 
um, really not uh, super intuitive to have to do these motion controls. So um, it's it's a little bit hampering my enjoyment of the game, but I am going to try and keep playing and, and see how it goes. Um, you know, I'm still kind of full steam ahead on The Last of Us 2. And uh, so I think that's got the majority of my attention right now, but we'll see. I'll still um, probably give some more uh, time to Mario Galaxy and uh, see how that goes. Uh, maybe I'll try playing in handheld mode also and see if that makes a difference at all. Um, oh, and I was going to also just mention, you know, in some other industry news, we found out today that some of the big movies have been delayed further um, from Disney in particular. So, you know, Black Widow being the biggest of those is now delayed from November into, until, uh, you know, sometime next summer. 2021. And I think it's not a shocker. Um, you know, we saw from Tenant coming out the other week that the box office is just not there right now. Um, you know, while we're still in this sort of stay at home era. And I just think it's going to be a while, you know, certainly we'd need a vaccine or, or whatever until people are actually going to the theaters in in the numbers they were before. So I think it's a good move. It's a smart move from Disney. You know, I, as a fan of theaters, am happy to see some of these movies delayed rather than just coming out uh, on digital because, you know, when theaters do reopen, they're going to need those big movies to get people back. And I would hate to see, you know, a Marvel movie coming out on digital and, um, foregoing theatrical release, I think would be a big game changer and would really undermine the effort to eventually get people back into theaters. And so I, I am happy to see some of these big blockbusters being reserved and held back until next year when it's safe. You know, I think there's going to be plenty of stuff to hold us over for the rest of the year, whether it's the Mandalorian, whether it's, um, you know, some of the Netflix original stuff that we have, still to come. Um, I'm enjoying so many shows right now, you know, from Raised by Wolves to The Boys. Um, so again, I'm in no like huge hurry for these movies. Let's take our time. Let's make sure things are safe. And then let's get people back into theaters when the time is right to do so. So interesting to see those changes, but again, not totally um, unexpected there. And I will say too, the trailer they released this week for WandaVision coming to Disney Plus. I forget the exact release date for that, but man, that is looking fantastic. Can't wait for it. I love kind of the quirkiness and the trippiness of it. Um, and it just looks like it's going to be a really fun take that's sort of a little bit out of the box for, for Marvel. Um, and so that's going to be really, really cool. Um, so yeah, that's all I've got for my intro this week. I'll be back and I'll talk about my three picks for the week right after this. Hey guys, so the first thing I wanna talk about, my first pick of the week this week is a show on HBO that I got into a little bit late. Um, I, had, I had heard about it. I had um, been curious to check it out. And then I just binge watched literally in the last couple of days, the first five episodes that have aired so far. 
and it's called The Val. And so um, I know this one has been getting some buzz. Um, maybe some of you guys have seen it. And it's absolutely just crazy. It is a docu-series um, about uh, very recent events around this, basically this cult um, that is, it's spelled weird, but it's called uh, Nexium is sort of like the public facing name. Um, I think internally they call it ESP. So it has this kind of many different guises, but it basically, it started, you know, around this guy, um, this guy named Keith uh, Ranieri, I think. And uh, he, he's sort of this just strange uh, guru type figure who he, he started doing these seminars and he partnered with this other woman, uh, Nancy, and they, you know, did these seminars kind of all around the country. And uh, they were kind of just the typical sort of new agey self-help type of thing. But they kept like, it seemed like they slowly but surely grew their numbers. Um, and they started uh, turning their membership of this group into this outwardly facing, basically like a corporation. And so while internally it was like run like a cult and there was all kinds of really crazy stuff happening, they set it up like a corporation where there were all these kind of sub business units within the group that were working on all kinds of things. And it was very, you know, uh, like each group has a, has a different purpose and there was this whole hierarchy uh, within the, the, the group, um, you know, where you had these different sashes, these different colored sashes, almost like, you know, karate belts that you might get when you're a kid. Um, and there was this whole dynamic where people were absolutely loyal to this guy, uh, Keith. And, um, you know, the, the documentary kind of covers um a group a core group of people who were just all in in this group nexium um and then at some point within a couple of years of each other all have this awakening moment and realize like holy crap i'm in a cult i need to get out of it and there's a lot of shady stuff going on within this group and it's so fascinating um you know, one of the main sort of characters that it follows is this film director um, named uh, Mark Vicente, who he had directed that pretty popular kind of new agey documentary um, called uh, What the, uh, I think, What the Bleep is Happening, um, that came out several years back. And he, so he kind of joined the group and he instantly became sort of their like, you know, documentarian and he was recording everything that they did, you know, every meeting they had, every conversation people had. And so the documentary has a remarkable amount of actual footage and recordings from the meetings that these guys had, the conversations that they had. Um, because they were very intent on recording everything. And, you know, they treated this guy, Keith, like he was this like messianic figure. So, of course, every word he said was like some, you know, prophetic thing that that was that was discussed and debated. And um, but eventually this guy, Mark, uh, he he turns against them and 
he's one of the central figures in the in the docu series, and it's crazy. I so I think you know just to back up for a second, I think the reason a lot of people ended up hearing about this cult was because um, the actress uh, Allison Mack, who was best known as playing Chloe on Smallville, um, it turned out was like a central figure in this group and eventually got arrested for basically sex trafficking charges in conjunction with her role in this group. And I mean, it's crazy when you watch this documentary and you realize like, how entangled she was with it and she wasn't just in the group she was one of the main sort of masterminds ultimately behind it um and it's fascinating it's also kind of sad and depressing because you see this actress who clearly is very likable and charismatic i mean i i watch every episode of smallville i always liked her on that show she was probably one of the standout you know actors to be on that show Um, and you watch her join this group and through all this archival footage that they have, you literally see the first time she attends a a group event um, and sort of enters it as this kind of vulnerable um, person who has probably some issues going in and then just very quickly gets caught up in it and just brainwashed by it. And then by the end of it, she's like, crossed so many lines and gotten so dangerously involved in so much illegal and just immoral activity, she had totally lost it by the end of her involvement in the group. And, you know, I think cults are so fascinating, so weirdly, darkly fascinating. And it's always puzzled me, like, why would anyone ever join a cult? How could they not realize what they're getting into? And, you know, this documentary sort of gets into that and it it does, you know, make you wonder about a lot of these people who seem generally pretty smart and accomplished and together. And then somehow they end up in the clutches of this cult and just seem for a long time, for years at a time, totally oblivious or unwilling to see what they're into. And man it's it is crazy and and the other thing that's so like disturbing but fascinating about the way that this cult is set up is that because it had the facade of being a corporation uh as opposed to like a religious group or something like that a lot of the dialect and the um jargon they use is so similar what you hear in a typical like corporate environment you know it's the kind of stuff that you would hear in like an hr training session or whatever but just taken to that next level uh uh, and involving all kinds of crazy element added elements to it um but you watch and you're just like you know you start to see the cultish elements that are in a lot of our daily lives i guess and um it is very disturbing in that way. I guess it's funny. I was saying someone earlier that I guess what's oddly hopeful about it is that this core group, you know, did break away and they did eventually see the light. And so it does give me a little hope, I guess, that, you know, when you look at, for example, politics in America today, where it is so cult-like and so many people just seem downright brainwashed by, the, the sort of false information they're consuming from social media 
or from Fox News or whatever it might be, you know, it does at least give me a little hope that, well, maybe there is a way to snap these people out of it. And maybe there will, there could be at some point some just triggering event that does just wake people up and, and, you know, zaps them of their brainwashing. So it's super fascinating. Um, the characters in this docu-series, it's like you couldn't write this any better where every character is so fascinating and so well drawn. And it's this weird thing where it's like, on one hand, it's one of those things where every character will remind you of someone, you know, and they'll be like, Oh, this reminds me of that guy. I know, or this reminds me of this person, you know, I've met before. And yet they all feel like characters that were written for a novel because of, of all their complexities and just how kind of, uh archetypal some of them are and this guy keith i mean he just is such a strange character where he's sort of like he just feels to me like this basement dwelling nerd you know who somehow also had the gift of gab and the power of persuasion and just had this weird ability to get his hooks in people and but you can see sort of this he has that like vibe of someone who grew up very wanting and very needy and, you know, is now trying to sort of make up for lost time. And it's just amazing to watch. And you see how, you know, it, it reminds me, it does remind me a lot of the Trump presidency because this guy, Keith basically goes to such lengths. He builds an entire corporation, an entire cult, and at the end of the day, it's really just self-serving for himself in, in multiple levels, you know, both to sort of build himself up as this kind of guru and feed his ego. And then literally just because he wants to, you know, sleep with a lot of women and he devises these crazy and, and very disturbing and immoral ways to sort of force people to force that to happen through the, the machinations of this group. And you look at someone like Trump who sort of uses the power of the presidency in a similar way where it's just all driven to feed his own ego and his own need for power rather than any desire to actually help people. And yet both of them, you know, outwardly, they act like they're doing the Lord's work and they're, you know, motivated by nothing more than they want to help people and help the world. And it's so clearly BS. Um on both of their parts. Um, but, it, you know, it's a, it's a little different in the case of this guy, Keith, in that um, he does, he, he has the ability to convince people that he's very smart and is sort of this genius intellect. And when you watch the documentary, you're sort of removed from it all and you can clearly see through it. Like, man, this guy just feels like he's read a bunch of articles on the internet and he just is one of those people that can say a couple words about any topic and sound like he maybe knows just enough to talk about all of these different kinds of, of new agey type of topics and self-help type of topics. But I mean, there's really nothing to it. Like there's nothing when you hear him talk where you're like, yeah, like, you know, I've heard people talk before who you you're just sort of in awe of and you're like, wow, this person is truly a genius that is not what you get from this guy. Um, 
So maybe it's something he just had that hypnotic effect on people, I guess, where they were unable to see through it. Um, and it, it is a just absolutely fascinating um, portrait of this group and of this cult. And it's all recent. Like, this is all, you know, something that started about, I think, 10, 15 years ago. And I think it still technically exists today, even though a lot of the people are now facing jail time or, or you know, criminal charges. So, uh, man, it is, I guess the disturbing part is, and once these things start to grow and metastasize, it's like, how do you really put a stop to it? Because they have branches everywhere. They have secret subgroups that are everywhere. Um, but man, the documentary, absolutely fascinating. Um, highly recommend it. I guess my one criticism of the documentary is that the way it's produced, it does kind of jump around a little bit in time and it leaves you with a lot of questions in a given episode of like, wait, when did this happen? Like, what was the sequence of events here? You know, there's parts where there's there's characters where you're like, wait, what is the relationship of these characters right now? Like last time we saw they were, you know, about to get divorced and now they seem to be together. So sometimes it is a bit jumpy um, in terms of storytelling, but it definitely makes up for that with just a fascinating, super compelling look at, at this cult that, you know, was really able to thrive um, in a way that is mind boggling all, you know, under the pretenses of like, this is a corporation. It's just trying to, create these groups that go out and help the world and enact positive change. And, you know, it's easy to see that people could have ended up going to them or doing business with them or whatever, not realizing what's going on, but it's crazy. It's crazy that this is, this is a thing that happened in recent times and that so many seemingly smart and competent people got sucked into. So Highly recommend The Vow. Check it out. It is a little bit disturbing, but it's it's like one of those things that once you see it, you can't unsee it and you've got to see more of it. So uh, good stuff. Definitely check it out. And it's the kind of thing I think a lot of people will be interested in. So that is my first pick of the week. So my second pick of the week is uh, a movie that premiered this past weekend on Netflix. Um, it's an, an original movie called The Devil All the Time. And this is one that I definitely been looking forward to. Uh, the trailer looked really good. And it's one of those movies where you see the cast and it's just like uh, uh, who's who of, of good and interesting actors. Uh, from Robert Pattinson to Tom Holland to Jason Clark to Riley Coe. Um, and so really great cast. And it just looked like one of those really, um, you know, kind of Southern Gothic um, crime movies that, you know, I, I tend to like those kind of movies. Um, it looked in the vein of something like Hell or High Water. And... Um, it is, in fact, after watching it, a very kind of dark uh, fable type of movie. Um, you know, it sort of follows its character 
uh, its main character over a long period of time from like early childhood to years later uh, when they're a, a young adult. Um, and so it's this very sprawling, epic uh, sort of family saga. And it's it's got that kind of dark, um, you know, almost like nihilistic type of, of storytelling to it. Um, I did like it. I think um, the main the main thing that stood out to me about this movie is that, you know, not a big surprise, but some of the acting is just really, really good. Um, Tom Holland really stood out to me in this movie. You know, obviously we know him from Spider-Man and we know him as sort of that fun, happy-go-lucky, quippy type of character um, playing Peter Parker. But here... He's playing a much more subdued character, a much darker character, a uh, much more kind of heavy, dramatic, uh, serious character. And he does a great job with it. Um, he totally nails it. Um, he, he's super good in the movie. And then Robert Pattinson also really, um, he's in kind of a more supporting role, but he kind of steals the movie, I would say, with just this very dark, character sort of this preacher who um you know has a, a, very, a very dark side to him um and in some ways he's kind of the villain uh, of the movie and uh he he's great in it i think you know a lot of people as a lot of people have pointed out you know i think people have been talking about robert pattinson's career um a lot since he was cast as batman and, you know, while he did start out sort of in the Twilight movies and was in, you know, those those kind of movies to start, um, he's really become, I think, one of the most interesting actors of his generation these last several years. Um, you know, whether it's movies like uh, Good Times or The High Life um, or The Lost City of Z, um, he's just been in a bunch of good movies and he's always... He always seems to be, you know, game for any kind of role. Um, and he's very good in this, very kind of a little bit over the top, a little bit, uh, you know, uh, kind of showy, I guess, but just really good. And, you know, the, again, the cast top to bottom in this movie is just fantastic. You've got Bill Skarsgård. Um, you've got Haley Bennett, you've got Sebastian Stan, Jason Clark is, is always great playing, you know, villains and, and psychos. And he's very much a psycho, uh, evil guy in this movie. Um, you've got, uh, again, just a really good cast top to bottom. So that to me is sort of what makes this out of everything, uh, a movie that I would recommend and, and, say you know you should give it a watch um you know i thought there was a lot of really interesting narrative stuff in this movie you know it sort of is about kind of like the cycle of violence and you know how um this kid who had had sort of a pretty violent dark upbringing you know then as he gets older has some stuff happen and you know it's sort of a question of is he going to be like his dad? Is he going to succumb to his kind of violent instincts in the name of revenge? You know, is there a way for him to break that cycle? It has a little bit of that kind of no country for old men type of, you know, dark view of the world and sort of, you know, a lot of meditation on, um, you know, on that perpetuation of violence and, 
you know, how, how the world can be such a dark place that kind of shapes, shapes us, I guess, in a way that isn't always the way we would like it to. Um, and some of it is nature, some of it's nurture, and it gets into a lot of those issues. Um, so there's a lot of like interesting food for thought that comes from this movie. Um, a lot to discuss when you see it. Um, I do think that because of the ambition of the narrative and how it spans a lot of time, spans a lot of different characters, a lot of subplots, um, it does become a little bit overstuffed. It is an adaptation of a novel, by the way. So I think that that can always be a challenge when you try and adapt a very sprawling um, novel to film. And I think the movie does struggle a little bit with, um, you know, having a cohesive narrative and maintaining a, a good pacing throughout and sort of tying everything together in a way that's satisfying. You know, I think in a book, you can get away with kind of a lot more divergences and a lot more tangents. In a movie where it's one, you know, two hour story, I think you have to work a little harder to tie everything together kind of thematically and narratively. And I think the movie ends up feeling a little bit random and, and sort of all over the place because of that. But again, it's, it's really an interesting film. I did enjoy it overall um, and just some really good performances. And it just totally captures that kind of dark Southern Gothic vibe. Um, that it's, it's a very atmospheric type of movie. So I would recommend it. Um, and it's definitely, uh, you know, especially now when there's kind of a lack of, of compelling new movies, uh, this is one that that I'm glad I gave a shot. So, uh, yeah, that's my second pick of the week. And uh, I'll take a quick break and I'll be back for the third and final pick. All right. So for my last uh pick of the week. I wanted to get a little bit nerdy. I wanted to talk about some comic book stuff. Um, and I wanted to talk about The Flash. Um, so this is kind of an interesting one. Um, you know, The Flash, if you if you followed uh, DC Comics at all um, for the last, I guess, couple decades, then you might know um, The Flash has kind of an interesting history for a lot of reasons in kind of modern DC comics. Um, and, and one of those, so, so sort of the context of that is that uh, the flash has really been one of the best DC comics for a sustained period in a way that I don't think almost any other comic book character from either DC or Marvel um, can really lay claim to. So, you know, uh, DC kind of, uh, Back, back in the 80s, they had, you know, the big event, the Crisis on Infinite Earths that uh, made a lot of big changes to DC Comics. It kind of gave them a chance to restart things and uh, try and get in new readers. And so one of the big things that happened in that Crisis on Infinite Earths miniseries back in the day was that the Flash, Barry Allen, was killed off. And that he had sort of the big uh, epic moment in that miniseries and basically died trying to save the multiverse. And so what then happened was there was this great passing of the torch moment where uh, the character Wally West 
who had been kind of the teen sidekick to Barry Allen and was known as Kid Flash, took over uh, the the identity of the Flash and became the new Flash. Um, and so in sort of the mid uh, to late 80s, you know, Wally West was the star of the Flash comic books and he had some good stories and he was sort of, you know, kind of the, the classic like teen who is coming of age and becoming, you know, more responsible and, you know, more of a hero and more of his own person. Um, but the real game changer was in the early 90s. Um, so right around the time when a young me was starting to really get into DC Comics, um, a writer named Mark Wade took over uh, the writing of the Flash comics, and he just really brought it to the next level. And, you know, Mark Wade now is known as just a legendary writer, one of the great, you know, superhero comic writers of the last couple of decades. But at that time, he had been kind of more of an editor. Um, he wasn't really known as a writer, but kind of slowly but surely his run writing The Flash became this sort of legend in its own time type of thing. And Wade, I think in a way that hadn't been done a lot in superhero comics to that time, he put a lot of himself into the character of Wally West. And he made the character feel very real. And, you know, a lot of the, the DC heroes in particular, up until that time, had always had a little bit of kind of a generic superhero quality to their personality. You know, there was always, you know, a few quirks that made Superman Superman, a few quirks that made Batman, you know, Batman. But The Flash, as written by Mark Wade, felt like a very real character. You know, he had relationship issues. He had, you know, concerns about money, about his job. And he felt like kind of a very... I guess, you know, like a Gen X character. And, uh, you know, as a young kid reading that, I thought he was super cool. And, you know, he felt like just this, this sort of great character in Wally West that I instantly thought of as like, okay, this is my favorite or one of my favorite characters. And I was, you know, a Superman kid and a Batman kid. But as I started reading comics in the, in the early 90s, I added Flash to that list, not even so much because I loved the Flash character inherently, but because I loved Wally West as written by Mark Wade. And Mark Wade, I think, aside from the characterization, what he really did was uh, he created a series of epic storylines that sort of made, really got into the sort of powers of the Flash and how he could run at the speed of light and he started really getting into like, okay, what does that mean? And so he invented this concept of the speed force um, that was this really cool sci-fi concept that started getting into like, well, maybe, you know, you could use speed to time travel. Maybe you could use speed to do all these other things. Maybe there's sort of this almost like supernatural element to the speed force and this sort of metaphysical element to it. And he took the flash and all kinds of really you know, interesting uh, sci-fi directions. And he did a lot of time travel stories and he did a lot of stories that um, kind of got into really mind bending type of, of sci-fi stuff. 
Um, and he created just these crazy epics. So it was this combination of like great characters um, and just amazing storylines that made it just a classic run. And pretty soon, um, you know, over a period of time, the Flash was was known as like the gold standard in storytelling for DC Comics. And, um, you know, you see in the Flash TV show, you see in a lot of other things that Mark Wade's writing on, on that run really influenced a lot of, you know, not just the character of the Flash, but I think superhero comics writing in general was sort of changed forever by that run. And so when Mark Wade eventually sort of retired from writing the Flash, I guess you'd say, there was a big question of who was going to follow him. And it felt like, well, nobody could live up to Mark Wade. You know, he had been writing the comic for several years and we're now kind of in the early 2000s. And, you know, it's like, how could anything top what Mark Wade did? And then, uh, and not only that, by the way, but, you know, during Wade's run, there were a lot of very notable sort of mini runs or guest runs by other acclaimed writer so grant morrison did a run uh, mark miller did a run and um so just absolutely some of the best writers of the modern era took a crack at the flash and so again it was this question of like who can fill that those shoes and along comes this writer who was totally unknown at the time named uh, jeff johns and jeff johns started writing the flash and before you knew it, it was sort of, uh, you know, it had elements of the Mark Wade run, but took things in a very different direction. And Jeff Johns established this particular voice uh, on the flash, I would say maybe a little bit grittier, a little bit edgier, but still also very much embracing of the classic kind of superhero tropes. Um, and before you knew it, Jeff Johns was writing a classic run on The Flash that lasted for several years. And Jeff Johns during that time became, you know, an absolute superstar of a writer and went on to write Green Lantern, uh, JSA, uh, a lot of the big DC events like Blackest Night and Infinite Crisis of the 2000s. Um, and so eventually he ended his run on The Flash. And it was weird because The Flash at that point, you know, for decades had been one of my go-to DC comics to read because every month for years, you knew that it was going to be a very high quality book. And so eventually that was around the time that DC was doing uh, the new 52 that was this total reboot of everything. And it was interesting. So right before that, Mark Wade had actually come back to The Flash and done a run uh, where he, he made a lot of changes. He um, had The Flash uh, get married and have kids. Um, and he aged up those kids and had a lot of stories that were kind of about now this super family. And so it was interesting. It had kind of a mixed reaction at the time um but i think over time people did sort of appreciate what we did there but then the new 52 comes along totally erases that wally west is sort of sidelined we're back to barry allen uh 
And as you can imagine, very uh, or Wally West fans were very upset. Like this character that had had decades of good stories and great characterization was suddenly just nowhere to be found. We're back to the more sort of generic Barry Allen character um, and all the great years of character development that you had had, you know, you felt like you almost knew this character, Wally West, you'd been following his adventures for 20, 25 years was just sort of erased essentially. So it was a kind of a frustrating time for flash comics during that new 52 era. There was some pretty substandard stories during that era. And for the first time in years, I just didn't care about the flash. Then flash forward to a few years after that, you know, the new 52 is sort of not uh, the success that maybe DC wanted. And they're now kind of back to the drawing board and they do this big event called rebirth. It was all about bringing back a lot of elements from before the new 52 that people really liked. And so they got Jeff Johns to write this sort of rebirth special that was going to lay the groundwork for everything to come. And the signature moment of that rebirth special was the return of Wally West. And so, you know, for years, fans have been saying, you know, where's Wally West? Bring him back. This is crazy. And the DC powers that be were sort of resisting seemingly. But obviously, you know, Jeff Johns had an affinity for the character. Um, He had written him for years. And he wrote this special where Wally West is sort of pulled back into, into the DC reality and he embraces Barry Allen and they have this incredible moment. And I know it sounds, this all probably sounds silly if you're not a a comic book reader, but again, just imagine that you've been following this character for decades and now finally he comes back into the, into the continuity and has this big moment where he's welcomed back and he's sort of pulled out of this like metafictional uh, purgatory and is back and, and it's going to be this new era to come. So that was very exciting, got everyone talking. Um, but meanwhile, in the actual Flash comic, um, they brought in this writer, uh, Joshua Williamson, who had had some good success in kind of the indie scene and had made a bit of a name for himself and he comes in and it was pretty apparent that he was going to have a good run on the flash and from that first issue it was like okay this guy gets it this is going to be a return to quality and it was and you know i think what happened was while the comic was about barry allen slowly over the course of a several year run since uh, 2016. So I guess it's been like five years now. Um, Joshua Williamson, what he did was slowly but surely not just tell good stories, but he kind of repaired, I guess, the damage that had been done to the flash. Um, And so his run just ended this past week. His final issue came out um, of the flash. And it, it is kind of a bittersweet because it ended on a great note, and what he was able to accomplish was he repaired what had been damaged. He brought back Wally West. He brought back other members of the supporting cast that had been sidelined for so long, 
And, you know, even that aside, what he did was he just told several years worth of very good, very solid, very uh, high quality stories around the flash. Um, and he really brought back that level of quality that we had seen in the Mark Wade era in the Jeff Johns era. I don't know if I'd put it quite on the level of those two, but I really did have an appreciation for how Joshua Williamson sort of had this sense of how to build an ongoing story over years and years. And there were of course a lot of arcs within that, you know, years long run, but they all felt like they were building to something. And that's, I think a really hard thing to do. And, um, you know, even recently there was a lot that he had to sort of fix that was happening in DC, you know, Wally West had come back, but then in the last couple of years, like all these crazy stories had happened. He had been made a villain. He had been given these weird, you know, cosmic powers. And in these final issues, you know, um, it's interesting because I don't like when comics focus just solely on sort of repairing the status quo. I feel like if you're just in a constant state of repair, then you never get to just tell good stories. But on the other hand, I do really admire people like Jeff Johns and now Joshua Williamson who have that ability to sort of take things that were broken and tell a really good and emotional story that does also kind of fix the status quo and get these characters back to the best versions of themselves and sort of put the chess pieces back into place for another writer to now take a crack at them. And he did that, um, you know, even over the last few months, he sort of brought back the Wally West that we know and love. He brought back, you know, some of the other characters, um, like the golden age version of the Flash, Jay Garrick. Um, and so it was a, a very just admirable run on the Flash. And again, I think we're now in the position where whoever does take over next, is going to have some really big shoes to fill. There were some really good new villains introduced, some really new, uh, some good new twists to the to the storyline that were uh, introduced. And uh, yeah, I think Joshua Williamson is just now like I'm a fan of him. I feel like he's established himself as a really solid writer, and I think he deserves a pat on the back for just uh, a great run on one of DC's characters. You know, knowing that there were these huge, huge shoes to fill between the Mark Wade run, the Jeff Johns run, you know, I think you can kind of put the Joshua Williamson run right next to that and uh, and say that this was a, a very definitive run on, on a great character. So if you are a fan of The Flash, if you like the TV show, if you like the character in the movies, if you like him from the animated series, you know, you got to go and read the Mark Wade run. You've got to go and read the Jeff Johns run. But now I think you can safely say you've also got to go and read the Joshua uh, Williamson run because it, it deserves to be put alongside those classics. So um, that's kind of my my rundown of that. Um, and I just wanted to get that in there because I've really enjoyed um, this recent run of The Flash for the last several years. So those are my picks for the week. Uh, it was good to talk about all this stuff and uh, get my mind off of all the craziness in the world for a little bit. Um, and I'll be back next week with more. So hang in there, everyone. Shana Tova for all my fellow uh, members of the tribe. 
And uh, hope everyone has a good weekend. And I'll be back next week. Thank you.